So we're going to start this morning uh, exercising our imagination a little bit. So all of you people who, like me, tend to think in terms of black and white, uh, you might struggle with this exercise, and I'm with you, but the creatives in the room who tend to think more in color, uh, that they think and they feel in color, uh, you might like this. So black and white thinkers, just brace yourself. I know you're probably going to have like an intuitive, maybe a visceral reaction against this exercise, but now at least you know it, so you shouldn't be surprised. So here's, here's our exercise. Imagine what it would be like to have grown up with Jesus, to have been his brother or his sister, to, to have grown up in the same household as the Messiah, as God in the flesh. So just think about what that might have been like from a day-to-day, a week-to-week experience. So Jesus was a real person, lived in a real time. His brothers and sisters, his family, also real people. So that's why I want us to just think, what might that have been like? And I did that this week, and I had a hard time because I'm not very creative. So I went to someone more creative than me. Uh, a guy named John Bloom wrote a little article about this, and, and, and Bloom helped me frame up my thinking, my imagination. Uh, Bloom said, first... Uh, remember, Jesus would have been without peer in intellect and wisdom. So we see this in the end of Luke chapter 2 when he went to the temple and he was astounding the temple teachers. Uh, and so just imagine uh, having an older brother who at age 12 is already teaching these incredibly wise teachers, these respected teachers. And then you as a little brother, little sister, uh, you, you know, you, you kind of have those shoes to fill. <laughs> Good luck. Um, Bloom also says, Jesus' consistent and extraordinary moral character must have made him unnerving to be around. His siblings would have increasingly been self-aware of their own sinful, self-obsessed motives and behavior, while at the same time noting Jesus didn't seem to exhibit any of that himself. And so for sinners, that can be really hard to live with because You're being outclassed in every category. So how can you not, with an active sin nature, how could they not resent being eclipsed by such a phenom brother? And so those were Bloom's thoughts. And as I read that, I thought, okay, I I can connect to that. I I think my own conclusion, my own imagination would lead me to the conclusion, I wouldn't seem so bad. I wouldn't seem so bad if he wasn't so doggone good, right? I think that's what I would have felt like if I was Jesus' brother. And Jesus did have half-brothers and half-sisters. The Bible tells us that. Uh, And so I I want us to kind of put that on the back burner as we continue today. Today, uh, we're going to be in Jude, verses 1 through 4. Last week, we looked at the overview. We read the whole book of Jude, and we kind of overviewed the whole book. Um, So this week, we're going to be in the first four verses as we continue our study through Jude. And I want to read, I want to start by reading uh, those, those verses for us that we'll focus on today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. 
For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude is a very short book. It's only 25 verses. And so it's a great opportunity for us as a church to understand the Bible, understand Jude in light of its context. So when we understand these four verses, we have to take them in the context that they were given. They were given in the context of 25 verses. So last week, like I said, we read the whole book and we saw three big themes that covered all 25 verses. They could eat, all those verses could fit in the category of the world is dark and ungodly. That's, that's one theme. Uh, the theme that we are, we are to contend for the faith. That's another theme of the book of Jude. And the third one is that God is going to keep us to the very end. And so this week, we're going to focus on these four verses in light of the bigger context of the book of Jude, in light of those three themes, because we can't really understand and apply the book rightly without all three. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. If you take one leg away from the stool, you do not want to sit on a two-legged stool. It's just not going to end well. And so, for example, if you take away the leg of God is going to keep us until the end. And all you have is that the world is ungodly and we are called to contend for the, contend for the faith. Then, then what you have is a fearfulness of, are we going to make it till the end? Like the world's really dark and we're doing our best, you know, to stand for Jesus in the midst of this dark, ungodly world. But are we going to make it like, because the darkness is powerful and we know as we engage with it, we're not that powerful. So that's what happens if if you take away that leg of the stool. Or if the only two that you have is we're to contend and God will keep us, then we're a bunch of arrogant Christians. (laughs) We don't understand how powerful the devil is and how, how dark the world around us and frankly, our own sin within us really is. If you take away the ungodliness of the world, you're missing a big part of Jude's message. And, and, you, and you come away overconfident. And there is, Jude warns us at the end of the book, there is a real possibility of contamination that the sinfulness of the world would creep into your own life and into the church, just like he said in, the first, in, in verse four. And then, and then if you only have the two legs of the world is ungodly and God will keep us, then it's basically like we're a bunch of couch Christians that, We retreat into our home and we're safe, right? God's going to keep us till the end. We come to church on Sunday. We love each other. And oh man, the the world's really ungodly, but you know, they're just so ungodly and we're here and God's keeping us till the end. And we miss our opportunity to experience God as we contend. Does that make sense? So these three legs, they all work together in this book and in our lives. We need to have all three in order to be balanced. And so this week, we're going to start looking at our passage by looking at uh, our responsibility, which is to contend for the faith. Jude wrote this book. This is, he gives us why he wrote it really clearly. He wrote in order to urge the church to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And all that word contend means is to intentionally stand for. It's like, this is what I'm about. This is what I stand for. And when he says to contend for the faith, 
What he's saying is to contend for the gospel, the good news that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and that he rose again. So the faith, the gospel, is entrusted. It's been delivered to the saints, which if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've repented from your sin and you've trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you've been entrusted with the gospel in order to contend in the midst of this ungodly and dark world. So it's not just you, but it's all of us. It's the saints, plural. And this is something that we're called to do together. And I think often we have kind of a, a misunderstanding of like what our role is in contending. Like I've heard people say, well, I like, I like to just, you know, live out my faith and let people know I'm a Christian by my actions. And other people are like, I like to go door to door and, you know, like just tell everybody about Jesus. And uh, the biblical picture is both. We don't get to choose our role. Ten, year, ten years ago, I graduated high school, and I had my high school reunion uh, yesterday, and I was reflecting on the changes that have happened in ten years of my life. And if ten years ago someone would have told me, you'd be planting a church and being the pastor of a church, I'd be like, no way. Absolutely no way. And, and I loved Jesus, but uh, that just wasn't what I was going to choose. And the reality is, if you're a follower of Christ, you've given up your right to choose. He's your Lord, meaning he gets to call the shots. And yes, our choices still matter, and yes, we still make choices, but he's the one with the supreme authority on our lives. So when it comes to how we contend, it's God, how do you want me to contend? Not God, here's my, here's my idea, here's my platform. <laughs> you know, let's work with me on this. So we contend however God wants us to. And as we set our heart on God and growing in relationship with our Father, and as we set our heart on people, over time he makes it clear. And then circumstances change. You graduate, you retire, you have little kids. But if you keep your heart on God, keep your heart on people, God will bring clarity as to how exactly he's leading you to contend for the faith in that season. And like Jordan mentioned in announcements, the biblical description, and we looked at this pretty in-depth last week, the biblical description of how we are to contend is non-contentiously. And all I mean by that is we don't contend like with fists up, ready, you know, ready to duke it out. We, we contend with grace and with respect and gentleness. And Jude also, ha I think Jude has a great word picture of contending for the faith non-contentiously when at the end of the book, he says, snatch others out of the fire, which means we're supposed to be in relationship with people who are lost. We're supposed to be re in relationship with people who need to be saved. So Jude says we're to hate sin and love the sinner. Loving the sinner means calling sin what it is, but offering them Jesus. And so uh, since Jude is about contending for the faith, I thought it would be fitting to have an apologetic of the weak, uh, Apologetic is simply a word that means uh, to defend or justify a particular viewpoint. So Christian apologetics is basically defending the faith. It's giving reason for what we believe. We don't believe this just because our parents said this is true or just because we think this is a good thing to do. We believe this because it's true. Here's some reasons why it's true. So here's our first apologetic, and I think it fits uh, w with this message pretty well. Not all of them will, because these are just tools that I want to give us um, as we are learning to con contend for the faith. But the first, 
The first tool in your tool belt is your testimony. It's a really simple one. And all a testimony is, is how Jesus has and is changing your life. So, for example, James Roach passed away this last week. And uh, James was a man who came here for the last nine months. And, and he was a man who loved to tell the story about how he met Jesus and how Jesus continued to change his life. In fact, after he was diagnosed with cancer last December, he told me that, James told me that he told God, uh, God, I'll, I'll tell my testimony to anyone who will listen as many days as you give me, as many, as many opportunities as, as I have. And he did that. And uh, I think he'd, he'd be encouraged that, in a sense, he's continuing to do that because uh, what I'm about to invite you to do this week, even right now, uh, is pull out your phones and go to that, well, you can't really see, I guess, super clearly. Go to our website, and in the upper right-hand corner, you see resources, and then you see uh, a drop-down of documents. The only document that's there is a link to James's testimony. Um, you don't have to read it all, but I'd, I'd encourage you to read it, and you might just get intrigued and read all 10 pages. <laughs> uh, James, he had the gift of gab. He, but the fact that it's 10 pages, he loved to talk about Jesus. He loved to. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's his testimony. And honestly, he had some pretty sensational experiences. I mean, when I first heard some of them, I was like, I don't know if I really believe that. Um, <laughs> and so, so if you read that, you might be tempted to think, oh, my story is not that good. Uh, and honestly, I used to think that way too. That, you know, compared to some people, my story, my testimony, it's just, it's just not that good. But I, I realized a number of years ago, my story is about how Jesus has changed me. How can that not be good? So if you have a testimony, it's good news. And it's good news because Jesus has changed you and it's worth sharing. So when you tell your testimony, when you listen to people's testimonies, um, and here's what I did with James's, and like the fact that, you know, I kind of was skeptical. I said, well, is it biblical? It, are the stories that he's telling me, do they align with what the Bible teaches? And they really do. So as I poured over his testimony this past week, I was super encouraged. And I was reminded that I need to be active in looking for opportunities to share my faith, contend for the faith by sharing my testimony more frequently. Because your story, your testimony, it's not something that people can argue with, really. Like, oh, that, that didn't really happen. They could say that, but what, what they should be wrestling with is, is that true? Is Jesus really changing lives? So, for example, if, if I told you an angel came to me in a dream, hypothetically, if I told you an angel came to me in the dream and said that Jesus is not the Christ, Ben, you should be following the prophet Muhammad. He is the last and greatest prophet. You cannot prove that I didn't have that dream. But what you can and what you should do is say, Ben, I have some evidence to show you that what you thought was an angel was actually a demon. <laughs> and here's the evidence, Ben. Galatians 1.8. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we've preached to you, he's to be accursed. And you can be like, Ben, I'm no expert on demons. And I have no desire to be an expert on demons, but I do know this, a cursed angel is a demon. So don't listen. 
Don't listen to that. And that's, that's the way that you should think through your own testimony. Where is the gospel in your story? Where is the gospel in the stories of other people that you hear? So application, if you, if you didn't pick up on this already, I think to contend for the faith means, at least partially, we should choose to reflect on our stories, including the recent parts like last month or the last six months, the last week, Reflect on how Christ has changed your life. Tie it to the Bible and share it. So that's the first big theme. And we see it in verse 3 when he says to, to contend for the faith. That's the reason he wrote. The second theme that we see in these first four verses is the world is ungodly. And so he writes in verse 4, Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, and it, some translations might say like, their condemnation was foretold long ago, which if, if you guys are theologians, you might be wondering like, oh, is this like double predestination where these guys were, you know, sentenced to hell before the creation of time? Personally, I think Jude is talking about the older writings of Enoch, the Old Testament, and even the apostles to which he's going to later refer. I think context determines meaning. And when he says their condemnation was foretold or written about long ago, um, you gotta, you got to understand, later in the book, he's like referring to old writings. So he's saying these men are like those men before. They're unbelievers. And he's saying that these men have secretly slipped in among you, among the church, among the saints, right? Those who are entrusted with the gospel. And that these, these sneaky snakes, if you will, they're godless men. And they prove their godlessness by changing God's grace into a license for wrongdoing. It's like, well, God is gracious, so I can do whatever I want. That's what license for immorality means. You know, I'm saved, or God is gracious, God's kind, so I can live however I want. And in doing so, they deny Jesus Christ as the only sovereign and Lord. So what Jude is talking about here is the purity of the church. They've slipped in among you. And to be a pure church is to be a, a church that grace is inspiring us towards growth and godliness and not towards doing whatever we want. Paul writes to Titus that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, not to say yes to it. So Jude doesn't say, kick these men out. Nowhere in the letter does he say, kick them out. In fact, this is where he says, don't be surprised by them, don't be polluted by them. You stand for the truth in the midst of living among them. Invite them into that. Love the sinner, but hate the sin. Invite them to Jesus. So I think the application for us is in the midst of ungodliness, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, we have to choose to engage in relationship with God and relationship with people. And the only way that I know how to do that is to stay connected to the one who purifies us. The only way to be a pure church is to stay connected to the one who purifies us, Jesus. So I've told you before, I studied economics in college, and uh, I see this as a, a situation of externalities here. Like, the way, to, the way to be a pure church, you have to engage with God, and, and, and then the, the externalities flow from that. So he, here's an example of what an externality is, since I know you all want to study economics with me. A farmer who grows an apple tree, he grows the apple tree for the apples, but 
The fact that he's producing healthy apple trees benefits the beekeeper next door because the beekeeper's bees go and get the pollen from the healthy apple trees that makes for better honey, better, better honey producing bees. But the farmer doesn't grow the trees for the beekeeper, right? But the beekeeper benefits anyways. So the externality, of, or the, so to use that analogy of externalities in our, in our walk with God, you don't have your quiet times to persuade your lost friends. You know, you, you shouldn't. You don't, don't pursue Jesus for their sake. Pursue Jesus for Jesus' sake because he's wonderful to you. You have them because you need Jesus yourself, because you want Jesus yourself. And when you're connected to Jesus, you're more persuasive. So there's, an, there's a positive externality of you walking with Christ. It's the same way in your relationships. I'm a lot more pleasant of a person to be around when I'm loving my wife well, <laughs> right? Your relationships matter first to that relationship, but then to other relationships. So in the midst of ungodliness, don't think, how can I change the world? Think, how can I be faithful to God? How can I walk with God faithfully, walk with his people faithfully, and then love those people who are ungodly around me faithfully? The third theme is that God will keep us to the end. And I love how all these themes are in those first four verses. They're just packed full. But in verse 2, Jude writes, To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and then kept, kept by Jesus Christ. That brings to mind the end of the book, where Jude says, To him who's able to keep you from falling. This is a major theme of the book of Jude. And it, it reminded me, of Jesus' words before he went to the cross, he told his disciples, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The one who's overcome the world is the one who keeps us to the end. It doesn't depend on you. It's God's grace that keeps us to the end. And as we stay on that promise, I believe we'll experience what Jude desired his original audience to experience, which is mercy, peace, and love in abundance. But we have to remember the promise. So our application is choose to keep the perspective that God will keep you to the end. Your salvation, like coming to Christ, it doesn't depend on your actions at all. But your day-to-day experience of life with Jesus, your actions do matter. Your choices do matter. Because grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So we have to choose to keep the perspective and exert effort. And so let's finish by going back to uh, our imagination exercise. Little brother Jude. Yeah, Jude was Jesus' half-brother. He was a little brother. So black and white thinkers, I think this is our time to shine. Uh, Let's use some deductive and inductive reasoning based on what the Bible says to, you know, answer the question with some degree of confidence. And if you're a black and white thinker, you you really won't talk unless you have some degree of confidence. (laughs) So the book, look the, the way the book starts. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. This is a very, very humble way of Jude saying, I grew up with the Messiah. Because he was brother to both Jesus and James. But Jude considered himself to be a servant of Jesus. James does the same thing in his letter. He starts by saying James, a servant of Jesus Christ. And I think we need to remember, and and we can, black and white thinkers and color thinkers, 
we can remember that Jesus' brothers were not always believers. In fact, John 7 tells us that his brothers did not believe him. John 7 verse 5. But then in Acts chapter 1, when all of the believers were gathered together and continually devoting themselves to prayer, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, his brothers were there. They were in the upper room. So somewhere between Acts 7, or sorry, John 7 and Acts chapter 1, Jude and James and probably other siblings of Jesus became believers. We don't get all the details of their testimony, but we can definitely infer from the rest of the Bible that they were not born saved, right? Because they were not believers and then they were. And Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No one seeks God on their own. Nobody's born saved. We're all born into sin. And so what that tells me is that being in close proximity to Jesus doesn't make you close with Jesus. Coming to church, I mean, I I think it's great that you all came. That's a good choice. But engaging God's word, whether as I'm talking or as you're reading it on a Monday morning, it doesn't necessarily make you close with Jesus if you're close to Jesus. More than likely, Jude's experience of being his brother revealed his lostness. And, I, and we know also how Jesus felt about the lostness of his brothers and those closest to him. Matthew 13, Jesus says, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and in his own household. And so Jesus must have felt incredible pain that his very own brothers did not believe him. But Jesus remained faithful. He contended for the faith in Jude's case, at least 15 years. That's being really conservative. But Jesus contended for Jude and for Jude's faith at least 15 years, and he did that by focusing on faithfulness to his heavenly Father. Jesus had a perfect witness. So if you all have lost friends and lost family, um, just remember, Jesus was a perfect witness, and it took a long time for Jude to come to faith. So let's go back and kind of apply all of that reasoning to Jude and to the main themes of the book. I I found this incredibly helpful. The same Jude that talks about ungodly living, deserving eternal punishment, he knew that he himself at one time did not believe and that he himself deserved that same judgment. Jude knew that Jesus' contention over time is what delivered Jude out of his years of unbelief. It was, it was part of what God used to bring Jude to himself. And Jude knew that the same Jesus that saved him would be the same one that keeps him to the end. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I believe that everything Jude was writing, he first experienced himself. That at one point, he was the godless one who sovereignly kind of slipped in to the family of Jesus. And Jude proved his godlessness by denying that Jesus really was Lord. Remember, John 7, 5, he wasn't a believer. He denied that Jesus was the Christ. But Jesus contended for Jude by being faithful to his heavenly father. And at some point, Jude trusted that Jesus was in fact who he said he was. So now, in writing this letter, Jude is seeking to be faithful and to lead others to be faithful. 
to be faithful to contend for the faith in the midst of a godless world, a godless world that Jude was once a part of and that he was snatched out of. And he's saying in order to do that, we must look to Jesus. He's the one that will keep us to the end. We can be faithful because he's faithful. I think Jude would say that we contend because Jesus first contended for us. In the words of Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save forever. He's able to keep those who draw near to God through him since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. So if you're here today and you're not a believer or if you're not sure, right now, relationship with God is available to you through Christ. And you can, you can take him up on that offer by simply saying, God, whatever it takes, I say yes. I, I just want Jesus to act on my behalf before God. I just want to follow him. Whatever it takes, my yes is on the table and it'll stay there. And if you're a believer, right now Jesus is living to make intercession for you. He's contending on your behalf before God. And he's inviting you to be like him, to act on behalf of another. So pray just like we're doing in our announcements. Keep praying for lost friends. Keep pursuing them. Let's pray together. Talk to God about your life. God's entrusted the gospel to you, to us. And we want to be faithful with that. Not so that other people would be converted primarily, but so that we'd be faithful to God. And obedience is its own reward. So ask for God's help and tell him that you want to be faithful with the good news that you've been entrusted with.